I'm Katie. Welcome to Talking With Cancer. Thanks so much for being here. I started the podcast back in February 2022 when I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer called hobnail. And it was a way to keep my close friends and family up to date with my diagnosis and treatment. And that's evolved into what is now season three, where each week it's me plus a guest discussing all things about cancer. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, listeners. Good morning. I've got a big grin on my face because somehow I recorded this last week and it didn't record. I sent the file over to the lovely Mariam and there was absolutely no sound on it. So here I am once again talking to you for episode 14 of season three of Talking With Cancer. Welcome back. I've said this before, we're getting quite close to the end of this season and next week I'm going to do a wrap up and I'm going to talk about all the episodes and kind of what they've meant to me and what I've learned from them. But today's guest is someone who I worked with about 20 years ago at the beginning of my career and he was quite early in his career. I don't know if many of you are aware but my career hat is in entertainment PR. In particular, I have a niche in comedy. I was really honoured and privileged when Adam agreed to come on this episode because I knew that he had been impacted by cancer. And that's something, I suppose that's my caveat, any guest is welcome on this podcast who in some way is impacted by cancer, whether that's professionally, personally, or there's someone close to them has gone through or is going through a diagnosis. And very sadly, Adam lost his father to leukaemia quite some years ago and he was just so honest and open and funny in sharing his story. So my guest today is the comedian and the host of The Last Leg, one of the hosts of Stand Up For Cancer, Adam Hills, MBE, which I only found out after I spoke to him. Of course, he's so humble, he wouldn't have shared that with me. But he received an MBE for his services to Paralympic sport and disability awareness, which is just wonderful. I'm going to play out the interview now and I will chat to you after. I hope you enjoy it. The people that I've had on this podcast have been famous in my world and now I'm branching out to like the bigger world and I'm really really grateful for you coming on Talking With Cancer today. Adam Hills, thank you so much for being here. Oh thank you, it's hilarious to hear you refer to me as famous because we've known each other for, I think we just worked out over 20 years when you used to do publicity for me in Edinburgh. So for a start, you're part of the reason that anyone knows who I am, because that was your job. Your job was to make people know who I was. Oh. But also, you know, this is just a chat between mates. It's a chat between mates, and we now live near each other and have bumped into each other. I think the first time we bumped into each other was probably, I don't know, a year and a half ago or maybe two years ago. I haven't been here that long. Yeah. It was after lockdowns because we were we bumped into each other on the street. And we haven't seen each other for years. So we worked together in Edinburgh. We worked together out of Edinburgh. It was always a joy. You were always great, great client. And one of the shows that you did back then was called Happy Feet. Yes. And I realise now, looking back, quite how sort of groundbreaking that was at the time. 
to talk about something so personal and taboo in a way back then. I don't know if that's how you, if you would agree that kind of to talk about what was going on for you personally, your disability, your own personal experience. So can you share a bit about that? Did you think it was to be, well, yeah, tell the listeners what I'm talking about, if you don't mind. Well, I get, okay. So, I mean, it all goes back. I was born without a, well, without a right foot, with a right foot deformity, if you will. I don't know what the right word is for it, even after 52 years and hosting the last leg. But to be honest, it goes back to when I started out doing comedy, I was at the comedy store, the Sydney comedy store one night, I was hosting the early show and the late show. And there were about five people booked in for the late show and about 40 people from the early show stayed over. So they had all seen all my material. So I didn't want to do the same joke. So I tried to talk about whatever I could. And I made a joke about having one leg. I'd been at a party the weekend before and a woman said, can you still have sex? (laughs) Which I thought was a hilarious question to ask someone (laughs) because they've got one foot. And that was all I said. That was literally all I said. And I remember afterwards, one of the older comics said to me, I mean, he was a bit full of himself, but he did say, and he made a point, he had a good point. He said, you're not good enough to talk about your foot yet. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, you're still working out how to be funny and what you want to say and how you want to say it. All you said was a thing that someone else said to you. You need to wait until you work out how to be really good at comedy and work out what you want to say about your foot. Then you need to talk about it. Mm, Well, that's kind of smart. It was really smart. And I didn't talk about it for 13 years. I didn't talk about it on stage. And to be honest, two things happened that tipped me into talking about my foot. One was being nominated for the Perrier Award in Edinburgh, because that then proved to me, okay, I'm probably pretty good at this now. And I also then thought, now I know that if I do talk about my foot and I get nominated, it won't be a sympathy vote. It won't be the, ah, it'll be because I'm a good comedian. So I had proven myself, that was August 2001, September 11, 2001 is quite a memorable date. Mm. Uh, And then for me, two days after that. So I was in Birmingham on September 11, 2001, flew out of Birmingham to Dublin, where I was living at the time, whilst, like literally whilst the World Trade Centre was coming down, I was on a flight to to Dublin. And -hmm. then two days later, I had to fly to Paris and was fully expecting to have to take my prosthetic off when I got on an aircraft because it set off metal detectors. And the reaction, and I I now turn this into a story on stage, or I I then did, the reaction to my foot was amazing because my foot set off the metal detectors, but in amongst all the fear and terror of September 11, the reaction when I went through Heathrow was like, oh, no, just go, mate, don't worry about it, just go, just go. Didn't even check. And so for me, that then gave me a reason to talk about my foot because I thought this is, you know, one of the biggest terror events that we've seen in our lifetime And yet you're more worried about offending a guy with a disability than you are about checking the safety of the plane. And so it turned out the phrase I used was I wanted to let people know it is okay to ask questions. It's okay to stop me. And it's okay for people on the street to go, Hey, can I, what happened to your foot? And I had a reason to talk about it. So those two things that happened 13 years previously, wait till you're good enough and wait till you've got a reason to talk about it. Both of those coalesced in 2001 And so then by 2002, that's when I was doing the show Happy Feet, which was also, you know, that whole show was about finding light in a dark situation and whether it be the aftermath of 9-11 or, you know, being born with a a right foot, 
it's finding a positive in a situation like that. So that's that's how that all came together. So would you agree with my point that it was quite a taboo thing? I mean, yes, because I, that's exactly the point you're making. Even at security, it was like, oh, oh we, you know, we don't want to deal with this. So it was quite a brave thing, was it? Did you think that at the time, apart from it being brave to be ready to put that in your comedy? I certainly didn't think of myself as being brave because I was just talking about me. That was pretty easy. And I would have lots of people, once I started talking about my prosthetic, other comics going, oh, you should tell that story you once told me. And I was like, oh, is that funny? Because to me, it wasn't groundbreaking and it wasn't funny. It was just everyday life. But then I had to realise that to other people, oh, yeah, that was actually... I'd have people coming up to me after gigs. I remember one guy at the comedy store in London saying, oh, my daughter's deaf and I've never found anything funny about it and I've never found anything to laugh about it. But watching you tonight it's made me realise that there probably is a lighter side to it. So kind of made me realise that, yeah, okay, I am doing something different and people are getting something out of it. And further to that, what I meant to say is one of the first jokes I then did when I started talking about my prosthetic again was the woman who at the party said, can you still have sex? (laughs) Then I added to it by saying, well, yeah, what does your boyfriend do? Does he take a run up? (laughs) <laughs> and so that little bit, me adding my punchline on the end of it is what 13 years of comedy <laughs> taught me is, you know, it's fine to say a funny thing that someone said, but my job is to make it funnier again. So I knew that it was definitely, if not taboo, it was definitely awkward. And that's why I wanted to talk about it because I wanted to let people know it's okay. It's okay to say, sorry, sir, can I check that you don't have a knife down there or I remember doing a, oh, God, goodness, a strip tease one night with Phil Kay, extra midnight show he was doing in Edinburgh. And I think backstage kind of stripped down to a pair of boxer shorts. And he went, oh, Christ, what's that? And I went, oh, I've got a prosthetic leg. And the first thing he said is, are you okay with it? And I went, yeah, I am. And he went, good. And I thought that was a really, really lovely question to ask. No one's ever asked me that question before, certainly not as a first question. Because if I was okay with it, then he was okay with it. So, yeah. I love that. That's such a good way to just cut straight through and just check the vibe, basically. Yeah. Because I'm like that. I'm okay about it. Of course I am. I talk about it on a podcast, the fact that I have cancer. Bring on the questions. Ask me anything. Yeah. But not everyone is. You know, you have to be careful, like, in a kind of community of people similar to me because they might not be okay. So it's a really good way to just cut straight through to that rather than tiptoe around it. Are you okay with it? Are you okay with talking about cancer or whatever it is? Well, and that's an interesting thing we found on the last leg is that, you know, we'll make jokes about disability because that's what we are. We're three blokes with four legs talking about the news. But there was a period where everyone else would then think it was okay for them to make the same jokes or assume that we were the voice of all disabled people And, you know, we kind of had to, sometimes you'd get tweets and I'd have to tweet back and go, listen, just because Alex makes that joke about me doesn't mean that every other disabled person feels that the same joke is appropriate. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Are you okay with it is a really good question to ask. It was new to do it on stage, but it sounds like off stage you were very open and you were okay with it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But I will say that talking about it on stage and talking about how I became okay with it probably made me more okay with it. Yeah. I think two interesting things happened. I remember talking on stage about how 
when I was at high school, I used to go to school in Australia in shorts, but with my socks pulled up because I didn't want to show the prosthetic. And then I realized that I was getting teased for having my socks pulled up. Oh, sweet. <laughs> Whereas everyone else had their socks rolled down. So then I rolled my socks down, showed off the prosthetic and was like, two things happened. I stopped being teased because I stopped looking like an idiot. But secondly, I then owned it. I was like, no, no, no. It was like a screw you moment. No, screw you. I'm going to roll these socks down. So I think that even just talking about that reminded me that it's up to me to own it. Mm. So it definitely made me, like I said, it made me more okay with it to talk because I talked about being okay with it. But also what was fascinating was there was always a degree of cynicism about my comedy from people because I was always really positive. That was mm. my whole You were the Prozac. What was the Brian Logan quote? Oh, yeah. Probably the Prozac of comedy or something, something like that. Something like that, yeah. So, yeah, I was always relentlessly positive on stage and there was always a bit of, yeah, maybe cynicism, maybe people thinking there must be more to that guy or there must be a dark side or, you know, there must be a reason he can't be like that. When people found out about my foot, it was like they went, oh, okay, now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. It was like, you can't just be a positive person in life. There must be a reason. And I think people kind of looked at me and went, oh, he's born with one foot. Oh, okay, so that's made him positive. Okay, right, I guess I guess that makes <laughs> oh, sense. It was, it was God, really interesting. Sweet. It was fascinating. Yeah. I asked this question because I want to get a sense of, like, I guess what your upbringing and family life was like with, I don't want to call the fact that you were born with one foot an illness. I don't mean to refer mm. to it in that way. But do you think that the way that you dealt with it and approached it was something that you kind of learned from your family and your parents? Was that the way things were at home or or not? I think so. I think my mum always tells me that when I was young, when I started to walk, my parents were told that I'd never walk. So, and then they found a different specialist who went, that specialist is terrible, of course he will. But they were told, you know, if he falls over, let him pick himself up like every other kid. And I dare say that phrase was probably like every normal kid. Mm -hmm. So I think that then affected the way, for better and worse, I think, because it made me want to do the things that every other kid did. It all comes down to the word every and normal, doesn't it? Because it made me want to do the things that every other kid did. But it also made me want to be like a normal kid. So I think I was almost defiant that I wasn't disabled. I never saw myself as having a disability because it's even people with disabilities will look at me and go, oh, it's not a real one. So it, it never really <laughs> stopped me doing anything and I never wanted any favours because of it. So I think it made me determined to do what every other yeah. kid or comedian could do mm-hmm. without relying on my disability. So I wanted to talk about your dad I mean, this Mm. is talking with cancer after all. And for me, it's, you know, having guests on who are impacted with cancer in some way. And then I just sort of wondered, you know, with that idea of kind of how open you were and it sounds like, you know, how your kind of upbringing was, like how was it when your dad got diagnosed with cancer? What happened and were you similarly very open and talking about it? It was an interesting one because my dad kind of had two hits with it. So he first was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was about 55. 
I had just moved to Adelaide at the time and he was living in Sydney. And it was one of those things, you know, when you hear the phrase, it's one of the good cancers. Oh, yeah, they say that about thyroid cancer all the time. Right, yeah. I hate that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we were told it was one of the good cancers, pretty strong, you know, chance of recovery, of remission. And I think we went into what I would call positive denial Mm -hmm. in that we went, oh, good, so it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Let's not stress about this. It's going to be absolutely fine. And when we talked to him and, yep. How old were you? Sorry, you said you'd moved, but how old were you? 26-ish, I think, 25, Mm -hmm. 26, Um, maybe a little bit younger, actually. So he then went through a course of, if I remember rightly, chemotherapy and then radiotherapy and then had a stem cell transplant. So it wasn't as straightforward. And looking back on it now, we, you know, we now realise it was quite heavy. Yeah. He was interesting. I remember him being in hospital when he had, I think it was the chemo, and he had to be in there for a while. And, you know, you, you kind of talk about things like, okay, well, if your hair's going to fall out, I'm going to shave my head as well. And he was like, no, no, I don't want any of that. And we went, okay, well, let's, let's at least make your hospital room look a bit more hospitable. Let's bring in some posters. And he was, I can't remember how long he was in there. Maybe it was just a week, maybe it was two. And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, don't want that. He was really kind of like, just get this over and done with. And did you respect that? Were you okay with that? Absolutely. And there were some really hard times, especially with, I know the stem cell transplant really knocked him around. And I remember being in hospital and I think my mum had a like the flu, so she wasn't allowed near him because his immune system was so low. And so I remember just giving him a hug and him just sobbing in my arms. And that's like, you know, that's the first time, of course, it's the only time I think my dad had ever sobbed, you know, while I held him. So I knew how hard it all was that he was going through it. But again, we were like, positive you'll be fine you'll be fine you'll get through this and he had some really dark moments positive denial is a really interesting way of putting it because I think there is a really fine line there I, you know I question myself oh um is this all denial you know I know it's not it's in my nature to be positive yeah but I think why do you refer to it as that I guess it's because it worked and he was fine and you know he went into remission and then there's that moment that I know a lot of people who go through cancer have, which is when the doctor says, I don't need to see you anymore. And that hit him harder than anything because he was like, well, how do I know I don't have cancer? It wasn't the relief that you think it would be. And and I remember him saying that I should be relieved that I don't have to go back to the doctor anymore. But all I can think is, what if it comes back? How am I going to know that it hasn't come back? Mm-hmm. So, and again, positive denial, dad, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. I guess we fast forward about 15, 16 years and he had come down to Melbourne for Christmas with my mum. They'd both driven down. He said he'd been feeling tired, showed me a really strange bruise on his arm that he couldn't get rid of. And I think maybe if actually, or maybe even a little bit before that, he had in that dad way of we were on the golf course playing and he said, so had a bit of a weird one with the doctor last week. And I can't remember what it was that made him go to the doctor. And he said, he, my blood levels are a little bit not quite right. And he said, he thinks it's maybe, you know, some medication that I'm on. So I'm just going to go off that for a little bit and see how it goes. And I'm like, oh, okay. And it was one of those weird ones of like, why are you telling me this? I'm not sure what this is about, but I'm sure it's fine. And I'm like, 
positive reinforcement. Yeah, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. Then he came down at Christmas, weird bruise on his arm, drove back to Sydney and then had to get my mum to drive because he just he just couldn't. He just fell asleep, which was really unusual for him. Went and saw the doctor. Doctor called back on, he had blood tests done. The doctor called back and I remember talking to my mum like 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve uh, in 20, at the end of 2011 saying, you need to come to the hospital now. And my dad was like, I'm not going to the hospital on New Year's Eve. <laughs> and she's going, well, they're saying it's, you probably should. And he was like, no, I'm going to bed. We'll do it tomorrow. And so she then called me, she kind of worried about it. And then the next day finally went up and they said, you've got leukemia. That's, and it turns out we now know, like when he did pass away, which was pretty much a year, almost a year to the day later, one of the doctors said to us, look, I mean, he had had a stem cell transplant before. So I guess this was always a possibility. And we were like, no, whoa, 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 whoa. What? He didn't tell okay. us this was always a possibility. And there are a few people who said, yeah, look, sometimes it can come, you know, after chemo and radiotherapy, maybe 15 years down the track, it's possible that it comes back as a kind of a, and we're like, whoa, 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 this wasn't, we didn't sign this deal 15 years ago. So, but that's cutting forward. So leukemia, I guess at that, you know, then it was like, okay, well, let's have, let's find out what's going on here. And I think pretty quickly they said, okay, you need treatment because, and I think he even said, well, okay, how long have I got if we don't do anything about it? And they went a month, two months. So, but they said, the good news is, you know, we can do some stuff here. We can do some chemo. But then they started suggesting bone marrow transplant. Mm -hmm. Now, at this point, he was 69. So he was getting up there. And they said, look, you know, we're pretty confident that at, at this age, we can have a good success rate. And then he started looking at all the side effects of what you can get from a bone marrow transplant. In particular, I think it's graft versus host disease. So when it's basically, you know, your body can reject the bone marrow or the bone marrow can just make your body really sick. And he kept going through all this and going, look, maybe I don't want this. Maybe I just want to just let it go. Maybe I just want, and we're like, you're going to die. Like, they've told you too much. Is months. that because he'd had such a rough time previously? I think so. You yeah, just didn't I think want to so. go back there, sounds like. And I guess this is why I call it positive denial, because we were like, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Don't look at the negatives from this. Positives. You'll have this bone marrow transplant. This is the success rate. I know it's harder for people when you get older, but, you know, stop staying up at night thinking about what all the side effects could be. You'll be fine. Yeah. And so, you know, ironically, a lot of this took place during the Edinburgh Fringe Festival because... I was up in Edinburgh. Mm. He'd had the bone marrow transplant. I'm going to say maybe June, might've even been May. And then I came over, I was at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I would do my show. And then while walking home every night, I would call my mum because it was nine o'clock in the morning in Australia and she'd update me. And what I later found out was that during that time, some of the doctors said, you might want to call your sons and get them home because this is not looking good. But she didn't want to interrupt my Edinburgh Fringe run. So she kept being positive, but... Where were you at? What were you thinking? I was buying her positivity. I knew he were wasn't you? well. I knew he was having... I think he ended up with encephalitis because he, he kind of got a, um, you know, a virus to the brain. He was having hallucinations. The medication was knocking him around. You know, and then did the last leg. 
the first ever last leg during the 2012 Paralympics. Wow, was yeah. over here for most of the rest of the year, made it home at Christmas. He got through that period. By the time I got home at Christmas, he wasn't in a good way. He was in hospital. He had Christmas in hospital, basically. But even then we were thinking he's going to get through this. Yeah. Do you think because of his previous experience, you thought that even more or I guess I just wonder how, you know, when it's the second time, I wonder whether you think, you know, he's going to get through it because he did before or, you know, what does it feel like when your parents well, and your father's I mean, going you know, through that for the second time? The doctors are telling you that he'll be okay. Yeah. So you're trusting them. You want him to be okay. But I do remember going home that Christmas and saying to my wife, I started planning the eulogy in my head. Did you? And she was like, oh, don't be ridiculous. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. Yeah, I guess it was a, a couple of days after Christmas, he just got worse and ended up in intensive care. And I think there was a moment where I was talking to him a lot in intensive care. But this is the, okay, two things here. So there was that a moment where... I said to him, and he was really, really bad. And I said, you can get through this. If you can kick this, you can still kick this. And he just shook his head. And I said, do you know what? If you don't want to kick this, that's okay as well. And then within two days, he was gone. And I think possibly, and this is why I think it's a little bit of positive denial, because I think if it had been up to him, he might not have had the bone marrow transplant. He might just have gone, give me the chemo. I'll live out a couple of years. Let's see how we go. But we were the ones going, no, you'll get through this. No, you'll get through this. And when he was at his sickest, we were going, come on, you can do this. You can do this. And I think I kind of felt like, cause then that night I went home and my mum came in and she said the same thing. She said, if you want to go, it's okay. And I kind of felt at that point he was hanging on for us. And I remember not long after, like a, a couple of weeks or a week later, a friend of his called up not knowing that he had passed away and I was talking to him and he said, do you know what? He said to me in August, I'm ready to go. And so, but that's, you know, August was when I was in Edinburgh and my brother was in LA. So the way it happened was we all managed to come home and see him and he knew he could go with our permission. Yeah, I definitely think that happens. I really think that in some instances when you hear these kind of stories play out and same with my dad like they kind of wait sometimes for you all to come together but I think what's interesting about what you're sharing is that you know first of all when you're going through cancer sometimes you have got your whole family to think about in terms of your treatment mm. plan it's not just about you yeah, you know yeah. and then the other thing about it is like Similarly, we've talked about taboos, but taboos around death, like maybe you were right to write his eulogy. Maybe yeah. that wasn't so ridiculous. And, you know, because I think it's really interesting how we handle death in this country, in the Western world, I should say. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know? exactly. Like, even to the point where I've kind of made the joke, and it's not quite right, but it's almost there that, like, you know, cancer is one of the politest killers there is. <laughs> it, you know, it's almost like the equivalent of the IRA ringing ahead and telling you there's a bomb in a building <laughs> because it, you know, yeah, it's not totally. what want, but it does give you time. I mean, cancer does trigger the idea of death sentence. Now, it's not the case in 
many, many, many cases, it's not the outcome and yeah. more so now. And I'm learning that even more with treatments. And that's one other thing I'd be interested, you know, like if it was now, how different would it be? You know, that's what All I wonder right. with my dad. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you think about this stuff. You have to think about this stuff. Well, and even to the point where, like I mentioned this to a friend of mine, I have a friend in Melbourne who has cancer, the thyroid cancer as well. And someone he knew had passed away, like older, just gone to sleep in the couch in the afternoon and then just passed away sleeping in the couch. And I said, yeah, that's how I want to go. And he went, I don't. He said, because they didn't get to say goodbye to anyone, at least my way. And I mean, he had more than just thyroid cancer, so there was more going on. But I mean, he's still kicking on. He hasn't left us yet. But he said, you know, when I go, I'll know. I'll have said goodbye to everyone and I'll, I'll have wrapped up what I want to wrap up. So as much as it's taboo to talk about death, it's taboo to talk about death in a positive way. And so true, yeah. Because we're all going to die. Exactly, exactly. That's what I say. I'm no different to everybody else. It's just that I've had to think about it more and I have to think about it, you know, on a day, not day to day, but like it's a subject I think about and I talk about with my husband and I talk about it on the podcast and I, you know, you're right. We don't talk about death and dying. And, but I think there's something interesting when with parents and how parents would talk to their children, however old, and vice versa. I mean, it's very difficult talking to my mum about death, but, you know, I think, yeah, I just wonder whether it would, yeah, for me, whether it would be different now. But it sounds like you had a pretty profound conversation with your dad. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a Buddhist prayer that I once read that I often repeat to myself, and the end of it is, um, may, I, may I die a good and peaceful death, and in the triumph of my death, may I be able to benefit all other beings, living or dead. Like, what a way of the triumph of your death. What a great phrase to use. That And that knows no age. You know, you can mm. have triumphant death at 32, more so than 92, depending on what your life was. So a triumphant life and a triumphant death going hand in hand, I think is wonderful. But what's also interesting about my dad the second time around, not just that profound conversation that we had, mm. um, but the second time around, we had more fun with it, if that's makes sense. And he was more open to having a bit more fun with it. So for example, he decided he was going to get a shirt made up that said, I kicked cancer in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I can't remember whether I started saying it. I mean, I was good friends with Hannah Gadsby at the time and uh, kick it in the dick was often a phrase we would <laughs> say to each other before going on stage to do gigs. So it's possible that she started it or I started it with my dad. And then every time I'd see him, I'd say, all right, you know, like if I was taking him to a radiotherapy session or something, I'd say, okay, well, you know what you got to do now? Go and kick it in the dick. Kick brilliant. cancer in the dick. And then we ended up with a kick cancer in the dick dance that we oh, do all the brilliant. dance to each other. Even in hospitals, that. we had a thing, our whole family had a thing that we would always do, which is based on a scene from a Mel Brooks movie, which is, um, oh, there's a town hall meeting. And then someone says, let's end the meeting on a high note. And then everyone goes, <laughs> it's the dumbest joke. But my family and I would do that. My, you know, Every time I saw my mum and my dad, right, end on a high note and we'd do it. So there was more this time through, mm. he embraced it more and he had a bit more fun with it. And I mean, literally the last word he said to me in hospital, well, after I'd had that conversation with him about it's okay to go if you want to go. And I went, right, look, I'm going to go home now. Mum's coming in this afternoon. 
I still in intensive care went and he still managed to squeak out it. And I think that's brilliant. You know, technically that's the last thing he said to me. So the fact that he did end or we ended our, you know, everything on a high note. And then, you know, the, even the day he died, and this is ridiculous to say, was like it was a beautiful day. It was a Sunday. They put him up into a room that had views over Sydney. His brother was there, my mum, myself. We all came and said our goodbyes, you know, his dad. I mean, his dad's still alive now. So my granddad's 104. Wow. So he had to go through all of that. And, mm. you know, I got to say to my dad, look, you know, my brother, Brad, he's at home with Pa. We're going to look after him. We sat, we read the papers, we told stories. I mean, he didn't read the paper. He was just lying there. Every now and then he'd open his eyes. And even to the point where I remember <laughs> when I had an alone moment with him, I just said, I'm sorry I missed so many of your birthdays because his birthday always fell during the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I remember him just opening his eyes and glaring at me. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that glare meant I worked for Qantas when you were a kid. I missed most of your birthdays. Don't give me that shit. I was like, okay, sorry, I take that back. We got to say everything that we wanted to say. We had, even that I, I love that it was a Sunday and we were reading the papers, which is what we used to do as kids. And then, you know, I was holding his hand when he passed away and it was awful and it was beautiful. And it mm. was, you know, again, there's a Buddhist tradition that, the highest honor someone can can pay you in life is to let you be there when they pass away because that, that is the most that is the biggest thing that will happen to you in your life is is your own death mm. and to share that with another person that vulnerable moment is the highest of honors you can pay someone so you know i felt honored that my dad let me be there for that moment and kind of lucky that i was there for that moment so you know as tough as cancer was as a disease and unexpected and ruthless and kind of non-discriminatory as to who it decides to target, it gave us that moment. Mm. And this is a guy that worked for Qantas. He could have gone down in a plane crash at any time and we wouldn't have got to have had moments like that. So I think it's what, like what you said, taking away the taboo about death, but also embracing death. That's even harder. Embracing death as a positive and a thing that can be really beautiful. Yeah. And a triumph, to use that word, in the triumph of my death. I love that Buddhist phrase because it says, in the triumph of my death, may I be able to benefit all other beings, living or dead. There's so much in that. Like, I hope my death helps other people, but even people who have already died. Like, I hope my death helps all of them. That is such an amazing... I love that. The two worlds colliding. That's just gorgeous. Yeah. It's podcasts like this, it's conversations like this that chip away at that. I think so. I hope so. I was talking to my friend Deborah on this podcast and she was there when her mum died of lung cancer and she said, you know, there was just something, like you said, something so beautiful about being there, present in the room, holding her hand. And I wonder how that changes the grief experience. And I also wanted to ask you, because I know mm -hmm. I felt with my dad this slight guilt at the relief because you know what's really hard about going through cancer with a loved one probably more so than with yourself is like the what ifs and those periods of time where there are like really difficult 
dips physically, you know, when there's pain mm. and there's struggling and suffering, and then you might come through that and then there might be another one. And so there's a bit of this sense of relief that you're not got that constant worry yeah. or you're seeing them in pain or, you know, and yet you've lost that person. And I found that difficult. I was quite a bit younger. I was 27 when my dad died. And right. he'd had it. He'd had pancreatic cancer for three years and we sort of knew it was terminal. So we were also kind of waiting for that. So I don't know. Does, can you share a little bit about the grief and that experience? I understand that because you say at the time, I'm, I'm relieved that he's not going through pain anymore. But there is also a part of you that is relieved that you don't have to go through it anymore. And because it's a lot. And once that release happens, it's okay to be kind of selfish about it, I think. But you do feel selfish. You feel like, oh, God, this isn't about me. How can I feel relief? But, yeah, you're going through an enormous amount as well. So if you're relieved that they got cancer in the first place, maybe have a look at yourself. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think that's really important. It does affect the people around, you know, it does affect the people around you. I take that into account all the time. You know, how is this affecting my husband, my mother, my best friend? Like, of course it does. So... Yes, I think that's also okay to have your own experience of that and to say that was really hard for me too, you know, like as the son of a father going through that. But as far as grief goes, I remember many years ago being at um, Uluru, which people know as Ayers Rock in the middle of Australia, and there's a rock formation near it that used to be called the Olgas, it's now called Katachuta, and it's part of a national park and it's run by the Indigenous locals. And... But whenever an Aboriginal elder dies from that group, they shut down the park. Of course they do, because they have a period of mourning. And one of the guides was telling us the problem is, not the problem, the tricky thing is they never know how long that period of mourning is going to be because it varies for person to person. And so when a, someone passes away, they'll say to the elders, okay, well, how long is the park going to be closed for? And the answer will always be, don't know. How long do you think we should grieve for? Um, that's it is... such a great analogy I love that that's a brilliant illustration of grief because it does it varies according to the person that passed away it varies according to your relation to that person it varies according to who you are as a person there's no right or wrong way to grieve we know that there's but there's also no set timeline there's mm. no well after this many weeks you'll start to feel this and after this many weeks and it just is and you yeah. can't measure it and you can't prepare for it and you can't quantify just have to go with it so but I think you're right I think having been there with my dad right at the end it felt like I did everything I could do and I felt um I I was glad that I was there Mm -hmm. and I felt for my brother because my brother wasn't there but I've told him and I hope he knows in his soul that by being at home with my grandfather, it let my dad go. It mm. allowed him to go and mm. it allowed him to go knowing that his dad was being looked after. So I think I might be wrong, but I think the grieving process is probably helped by being there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder that. In just in the sense that you've really witnessed the passing of yeah from life into death maybe i don't know though because i've never been there by anyone's side when they've died you know maybe that's what what a funeral is 
is kind of marking the fact that this person has gone from life into death. And maybe that's what an open casket does. It just allows people, because otherwise you're like, well, this person's just not in my life anymore. They could be anywhere. Like for years, I think, and my mum felt the same way because my dad spent so much time working for Qantas, just felt like he was away. Mm, yeah, that's the kind of surreal element of it, isn't it? It's You can't quite, yeah, if you haven't, but you're saying if you've been there, you've seen it, you know, definitely it happened. I'm <laughs> yeah, no? yeah. Yeah. And again, maybe that's why we have funerals to, yeah. as much for us as to send the person off to remind ourselves, yes, that person has officially gone. Mm. And, you know, you need to close that chapter in your mind a little bit. Yeah. And I think what you say is so true, because I think grief, grief changes over time as well. You know, like, you can go, I found I can go through periods where like, I really miss my dad, you know, and it's been 17 yeah. years or something. So that's also really, really surprising. The other thing that Deborah mentioned is this idea of complex grief and the idea that in certain cases, you know, actually there's like many layers to what that grief is. And depending on the relationship with that person when they're alive, you know, that could have been really complicated and really complex and that can then appear in the grief. And, you know, she also said to me that like, she believes the relationship with her mother is still carrying on even after her mother's died. And I thought that was really interesting. I had never thought about that before. It's an interesting concept. Yeah. The, I mean, often I'll do things. Oh, sorry. Occasionally I'll do things and I'll think, Oh, I'd love, you know, I wish my dad was here. And then I think, oh, I might tell him. I might tell him what. And I imagine myself telling him and I kind of get halfway through and then think, he knows, he's here. Like, he's he's probably part of the reason that this is happening. He's with me the whole way. Mm -hmm. So I kind of feel like he's probably with me more now than he was when he was alive. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to go down that, that's what a lot of people believe death is, is that, you know, suddenly you're one with the universe. You can be anywhere at any time and you can be everywhere all the time. So, yeah, I feel like him passing away just meant he became more a part of me again, which he always was because he's my dad. Like genetically, he's a part of me. Yeah. But it's almost like he just went back to being a part of me again. I know exactly what you mean. That makes total sense. That's so kind of you to share your story so openly. And honestly, I feel quite moved by it. But, you know, it's also bringing up stuff for me about my dad. And, yeah, it's really lovely. You've made some really lovely points. And it, it's I'm on so the same page about talking openly, obviously, about, <laughs> about things that yeah. seem to be taboo, you know. I know like Stand Up to Cancer features quite a lot in your career. Just to explain a bit about how you got involved and why you got involved and, and what they do actually would be great. After The Last Leg finished in 2012, Channel 4 weren't quite sure what to do with The Last Leg because we were a Paralympics show. But Stand Up to Cancer was on that year, so they asked Josh and Alex and I to sit together on a couch in an afternoon and ask each other some is it okays. And I honestly can't remember what we came up with, but it was, is it okay, you know, to not give to stand up to cancer or whatever? We kind of sat on a couch, made a few jokes about it, tried to make some good points, but we also just made each other laugh for like 20 minutes, real, and the chemistry was really there. And we went out to lunch afterwards and I said to them, look, you know, Channel 4 want to keep us on as a regular thing. And I said, look, I think 
when the cameras go on us, something really special happens. And that just proved that we don't only have to talk about Paralympics. We just talked about cancer for 15, 20 minutes and we made it funny, but we also made it good and made it worthy. And I said, you know, there's only one other TV show I've done where I've had this chemistry with people. And that was a show in Australia that I hosted called Spicks and Specs. And that ran for seven years and we did 300 episodes. I said, so I think we might be onto a thing here. And so from that, you know, we then said to the channel, yeah, okay, let's give this a crack. Co-hosting Stand Up to Cancer for me is just that's doing what my dad wanted me to do. Amazing. And doing what he would do. Yeah, I'd never thought of it in those terms of his death benefiting all other beings, living or dead, but that's exactly... Triumph of his death. The triumph of his death, exactly. That's wonderful. And it's also interesting, given what we talked about at the beginning, that, you know, your platform, you can get up on stage and you can break down those taboos based on your personal experience. You know, you did it with Happy Feet and you're doing it again with Stand Up to Cancer and I think that's... I like that. I really like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think every year with Stand Up to Cancer, it just chips away a little bit more, not just at funding, but also understanding and acceptance and the discussion. And, and you know, like I said, you're, you're, this podcast is benefiting all other beings, living or dead. When my dad, and I, look, I ended up talking about this on stage. I ended up turning this into a stage show because much like Happy Feet, I remember there was a one of my dad's friends was talking to me and he said, look, you know, I guess this must be really hard for you as a comedian and you probably won't want to be funny for a while, but I'm sure it'll come back. And I remember thinking, no, this has made me more convinced that I need to be funny, partly because I want to talk about this. But I remember there being a moment where the specialist who was looking after my dad from the get-go who said, look, you know, these are the chances and we'll give you this bone marrow transplant and I think it'll all work and blah, 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 blah. And I remember seeing him in intensive care where my dad was at his worst and he just said, he just shook his head and kind of went, there's nothing more we can do. And I remember thinking... I can still make him laugh. He can still hear and he still made the high note to me. And, you know, as a comedian, you always think I probably should have done a proper job. <laughs> but at that specific moment, the guy standing in front of me who trained as a specialist in this field couldn't do anything for my dad, whereas I could. I could still make him laugh or smile in his last moments. Weirdly, that made me more convinced that I can't lengthen someone's life but I can improve the quality of it, whether that's in a one-on-one -on -one conversation or whether that's on stage for an hour or whether that's from doing a TV show or turning up in Twickenham to do a charity gig. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's about that thing of like what in one's job, what everyone wants is to feel to feel valued, but in, in the sense, like your value is, is really quite huge, you know. It's yeah. hugely impactful. Yeah, and I think... And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. When you measure life in number of years lived, I think that's that's not that's doing life a disservice. Mm. You know, and, and I guess that's why I came why I say the positive denial. We were trying to increase the amount of days that my dad spent on the planet, whereas maybe what he was trying to say to us was, I don't care about the number of days, I care about the quality of days. Quality, big time. I totally um, get that. And I think... I think that's absolutely right. You can die at 40 and, and have had a triumphant life. Mm -hmm. And that uh, comes into the whole taboo around death, is that all we want to do in this 
Western world is like extend life as long as long as possible. But you know, what's the quality of it? Come on, let's look at that. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so I guess, you know, I guess then I remember talking to my daughter about it, and again talking about this on stage and saying, look, you know, because she was then saying, well, am I going to die one day, and are you going to die, Daddy? And I remember saying, yeah, we're all going to die. So let's just make sure we have as much fun as possible while we're here. You make me laugh, I'll make you laugh. I love that. Kind of what it's, it's really what it's about. Yes, definitely. It can sound cheesy. And do you know what? That's one of those things where, like I was saying about my foot, without having gone through the loss of a loved one, whether it's through cancer or illness or whatever else, if you say it's about quality, it's about making the most of every moment, people write you off. Yeah, 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 yeah. why don't you face some hardship? But when you've held your dad's hand as he's passed away and you've made him laugh in that last moment when the doctors have gone, have walked away because there's nothing more that they can do, then you realise that, yeah, that one extra laugh really actually does mean a lot. And that one lovely moment of a Sunday does mean a lot. So, yeah, that's when that's when the phrase make the most of every moment is you realise how profound that statement is. Definitely. I know because it's I sometimes feel a bit cliche using it myself, but it's so true, you know, yeah. it's so true. It's a cliche for reasons because. Yeah. What was the show called that you did about your dad? That was called Clown Heart, which weirdly enough, I think Channel 4 are showing on maybe the 23rd of December this year. <laughs> Are they? I think they've just... Well, then people can go back to it because when we put this out, it will have been on, but people can find it on Channel 4. Clown Heart. Because that's what I said to my daughter. I'm assuming it'll be up on all four because I'd said to my daughter, so you be a clown heart and I'll be a clown heart and we'll just make each other laugh. Clown Heart. I love (laughs) that. That's beautiful. And in fact, that particular show ended up with a guy on stage who uh, has cancer, has thyroid cancer, and... But he also then had multiple lymphomas, I think. And he, his way of embracing life was to do something called Naked Tuesday, where he would get nude and post a photo on his Facebook page and often imitating other photos. So I got him involved in a TV show that I did where we got nude. And then I ended up writing a song called In Your Face Cancer. And that's how we ended, that's how we ended every show is him and I doing a strip tease while singing In Your Face Cancer. And so that's what Clown Heart is. I love that. How do I find in your uh, can I find in your face cancer? I've got to play it on this. Must be able to find it. I'll try and find a copy and send it to you. I'm sure. I'm we're definitely gonna play that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are just an absolute joy thank you so much i've loved chatting to you it's the most bizarre turn of events <laughs> we never have predicted it but isn't life wonderful <laughs> it is and as as i mentioned to you at the very beginning the most bizarre turn of events is because we live in the same suburb i probably could have just walked over and we could have recorded this at your house except that you don't have recording equipment no <laughs> idea about three blocks away from each other <laughs> well, i'll see you on the street soon absolutely <laughs> into you. let's organize it next time and make turn it into a coffee i'd love to i'd really <laughs> love that thanks so much adam lots oh. of love in your big fat face breast cancer you're getting on my tits Melanoma, you're under
prostate cancer. I ain't gonna let you in. In your face, cancer. I love that. Isn't that brilliant that he wrote a song all about standing up to cancer, in a way? Thank you so much for being my guest this week, Adam. It was just so lovely to speak to you. And, you know, what I thought was really interesting was when you talk about kind of not thinking it's brave to talk about yourself. That's easy. That really chimed with me because I am often told that I'm brave. And actually, I say that to other people who share their story. When in actual fact, what I feel is the same as you, like talking about myself isn't brave. It's kind of easy. And I thought that was really interesting. That's given me a whole different perspective on sharing my story. I think also, you know, talking about the triumph of death. I love that idea that we can leave so much behind and we can leave such a strong legacy. And I think that's something that I think about a lot, actually. And, you know, sharing kind of what it was like to say goodbye to your dad and the different kind of stages of grief and you know sort of being there as a son for your father and obviously as I talked about I can relate a lot to what it's like to lose a father to cancer to terminal cancer so yeah that was just a really positive chat overall and a reminder of I don't know just kind of looking at the funny things, the jolly things, the positive things. On that note, last week, I shared with you uh, the fact that there has been some progression in the cancer that I have, and it's time to switch treatments. And it's been a really difficult few weeks, actually, um, since I got that news, because I'm going into the unknown. And I've been so informed about the ROS1 gene, which is the mutating gene that turned on my cancer, and how to treat that gene and how to kind of starve that gene and then in turn sort of starve and shrink the cancer. Now we're switching focus. So we are now going to be looking at the thyroid cancer, which obviously I don't have a thyroid anymore, but the thyroid cancer is the cancer that's now in quite a few of the lymph nodes around my body. And I am going to start a treatment this week called lenvetinib. I know that it's given to different cancer patients, not just thyroid cancer, but it is given to thyroid cancer patients like me who are radioactive resistant. So I do not respond to the radioactive iodine treatment, which is a very common route of treatment for thyroid cancer patients. But because my thyroid cancer is so rare, I have the type of cancer called hobnail, I don't respond to the radioactive iodine. And hopefully I will respond to lenvatinib. So I have three days, I thought it was going to be longer, but three days where I'm going to be on no treatment at all. And then I go in to have tests and a biopsy and an appointment with my oncologist, Dr. Kate Newbold, to basically discuss the new treatment and come home with it. I have not been great at resisting Google and Facebook groups to try and find out how other people have experienced being on lenvatinib. But actually, the kind of most effective conversation that I had was with my lovely clinical nurse specialist, my CNS. And she said to me, look, we have lots of patients on lenvatinib and we see a lot of really good results with that. So yeah, it's interesting kind of facing these two 
paths, if you like. One where the treatment's going to work and it's going to work for a really long time and it's going to have minimal side effects and everything's going to be brilliant. And I've said it on here before, like I may look back on what I thought was a great experience on ontrectinib, which is the treatment I've been taking up till now. And I may think, God, I thought that that was a good treatment and effective and minimal side effects. And in fact, I will be on a new treatment at that time and I will think it's even better. I've got that outlook. And then, of course, I've got the outlook that I don't really want to think about. I almost don't even want a voice because I feel like if I put a voice to that thought, it will give it some energy. But you can imagine what that path is, right? It not working, the side effects being too bad for me to tolerate. Lots of fears that come up around that. What I've decided in true KP style is to really create a kind of a lovely, cosy safety net around me, particularly over the coming weeks, where I will have practices in place to feel like I'm really taking care of myself. And that comes into play with the food that I eat, the sleep that I get, the exercise that I take and the amount that I find myself outdoors in the fresh air and taking in nature. And I will continue to do the yoga for cancer with Vicky. I'll continue to do the Nordic walking with Maggie's Center with Carolyn. I will look at all those ways that I can integrate just a sense of kind of what can I do to help with my own healing. And I'm going to throw meditation into that as well. And that is not because I think that that alone is going to have an impact. It's that I really want to create a sort of calming, positive, loving, warm environment for myself to go through this experience. For me, I feel like that will help to carry me through and will make me feel that I have all the tools and the resource that I need to have a better experience of what's to come. So that's kind of what I am thinking about doing. And um, yeah, I will keep you guys posted on how things are unfolding for me. Of course, next week, I'll give you an update of where I am. And as ever, I'm on Instagram to share my story. And you can follow me on talking underscore with cancer. Please do get in touch. I love hearing from my listeners. My email is hello at talkingwithcancer.com. And if you've enjoyed listening, I would really appreciate that you go to the rate and review and you click follow as well so that we can get more subscribers and more people can find the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed the chat with Adam as much as I did and I will see you next week. <laughs>